Well, amen and amen. Well, I hope your Bibles are still open to Hebrews chapter 8. Um, I have said, I'm getting a little warm in this sweater. Um, I, I've said many times throughout our study since we began in uh, January, and I believe it's even more true today um, in the midst of these circumstances that we're in that we had no idea were coming, by the way. I wouldn't want to be in any other book, and actually I wouldn't want to be in any other passage than we're in right now. And that's because the Jewish Christians who originally received this letter were in the midst of very, very trying times. Um, They were facing enormous pressure from their Jewish friends, uh, as well as the Roman government. Um, Their friends were pushing them to revert back to their Judaism. Uh, They were... um, and, and the Roman government was trying to uh, was was persecuting them, and that that persecute, persecution was escalating. Uh, and what they were both groups were really trying to do was to get them to uh, forsake Christ, to renounce their faith, and to pledge loyalties elsewhere. Right? The Roman government wanted them to pledge their loyalty to Caesar as Lord and Sovereign. And their Jewish friends were wanting them to pledge their loyalty to the sacrificial system and the the Levitical priests and all that that was wrapped up in the sacrificial law uh, there that was taking place at the at, at that time at, at the temple, the same things that were being done or had been done at uh, the tabernacle. And in the midst of this pressure and persecution, the writer writes this letter, and he writes it to encourage them, he writes it to comfort them, he writes it to minister to them, he writes it to remind them of the hope that they have, and it's a hope that transcends, not only transcends their circumstances, but also gave meaning to them. And and, we, and you might ask, well, why is this perfect for us? Because we're not in the midst of persecution, and, and that's true. But at the same time, I think we're being asked to pledge our loyalties to other things in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, and, and really, we're being asked at this time and being encouraged to uh, look to other things and other people and other institutions to find our hope. We're, we're being asked to look to, um, look to the president and his corona task force or his reopening task force We're being asked to look to our state governors and our local mayors and their medical and economic secretaries and councils that they've put together. We're being encouraged to trust in and place our hope in statistical models and our ability to test and medical experiments and vaccines and stimulus packages and stimulus checks and the stock market and oil prices and all of the reopening plans that we're we're looking forward to. We're also being encouraged in in a way to place our hope and trust in each other. Right? We uh, so that we, you know, we're, we're hoping and trusting in everyone to to comply with the powers that be and stay at home and wear our masks and wash our hands and meet virtually and remain physically distant from one another. And I think it's important for us to, 
when we realize the circumstances and we realize what it is that he's saying here in chapter 8, really what he's been saying all along, we need to remember that he doesn't, in the midst of this, give those that are hunkered down in their homes, probably, um, he doesn't give them seven steps to experience peace in the midst of their suffering. He doesn't give them five ways to assure them that their family is going to thrive at home. He doesn't tell them that they possess the power within themselves and all that they have to do is stop dwelling on defeat and just expect to see a victory. He doesn't energize them by telling them that their miracle is on the way. He very simply has said over and over and says again here in chapter 8, he says, Look to Jesus. See Jesus. Because outside of him, there is no hope. Outside of him, there's only disappointment and despair and disillusionment and hopelessness. And we, he's been saying, he's, he's told us already that Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows our every weakness. He knows our every frailty. He knows what it means to be tempted. He understands the temptations we face but he's, all, he, he's also dealt with our greatest enemy. He's defeated our greatest enemy. He's dealt with our greatest problem, both of which are, are more dangerous than any of our temporal circumstances, and they're more dangerous than any virus we could ever come up with or come down with, actually. The bottom line is that he says, look to Jesus and consider him because he's better. He's better than anything and anyone. And here in chapter 8 that we've already read, we have a summation of what he's been saying since chapter 5. And, and the reason, we also, also in this, not only does he kind of uh, give us a summation, but he also introduces, um, well, he, he shares with us why he used Melchizedek as an illustration and why he used him to introduce the next two chapters that he's going to fo- and, and the topics he's going to focus on in chapters 9 and 10. And he's going to explain how Jesus is, a, again, I've already said this, a better priest of a better covenant that's enacted on better promises. And that's, that's the outline. Better priest, better promises, uh, or better, better covenant and better promises. But let's, let's pray before we begin. Uh, Father, would you in these moments encourage us from your word? Help us to rest in Jesus, who is, in one word, better. Would you, during this brief time, assure us of our Savior and our salvation and give us confidence that because He lives and holds the future, we can face tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll see in verse 1 that he opens with a statement, Now, the point that we are saying is this. If he was sitting here at the table with me, he would say something like, The point I'm trying to make is this. Right, so everything is building and has come to this crescendo and to this point. And he says, he says, now I, I've talked about Melchizedek and it was so very important because we have such a great high priest. Everything that he's been talking about Melchizedek, he's been saying because he wants them to know that they have such a great high priest. And then he proceeds to describe what kind of high priest that is. And he says, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. It's almost an identical statement to what he said in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 3. And by making it again, he's stressing the same things, but, uh, but it's, it's important for us to repeat them because he's repeated them. Uh, one, he's, 
he's stressing the fact that Jesus is a priest whose sacrificial, purifying, and justifying work has been completed. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sat down. Right? There were no, no chairs in the tabernacle because the job of the Levitical priest was never done. It was never finished. It was never completed. There was always work to do. There were always sacrifices to make for themselves and, to, and for the people. And so they were never able to, to cease what they were doing, so they never sat. Jesus, on the other hand, sat down. Because his work was finished. Secondly, he's stressing that the fact that Jesus' sacrifice was satisfactory. It did what no other sacrifice prior to his would do. His sacrifice did what the sacrifices of bulls and goats could not do. And again, that is something that we're going to look at specifically in chapters 9 and 10 coming up. But his sacrifice of himself, his laying down of his body, the shedding of his blood, did what no other sacrifice could do, and it was to cleanse God's people from there, thoroughly from their sins. So his sacrifice was, you've heard me mention this before, it was, in fact, a satisfactory penal substitutionary atonement that paid the penalty for the sins of God's people, of all of those who had ever placed their faith in him. Thirdly, it's, uh, he's stressing that being, for Jesus to be seated at God the Father's right hand actually spoke of his royal authority. And he's, as we learned in the opening of chapter 1, he is our perfect priest, but he's also our ultimate king. So he had all power and authority and is ruling and reigning, not only as a king, but as a priestly king. And he rules through serving his people, always interceding on their behalf. And the writer says, if you look, he is serving in heaven. The, the throne is in heaven. And from verses 2 to 6, the writer stresses that there's a very big difference between what Christ was and is doing as their great high priest and what the Levitical priests did in the tabernacle in the wilderness and in the temple, both in the past and in their present. He says that when God gave Moses... Instructions to build the tabernacle. He didn't just give him verbal instructions. We go back to, I believe it's Exodus 25, verse 40, and we see that, and the writer brings this out, that he was also given visual instructions. He saw something. And so the writer's pointing out that everything that they knew about the tabernacle, the Levitical priesthood, and the sacrificial systems were all, and we just explained this with the kids, they were all copies and shadows of heavenly realities. Whatever Moses saw, um, whatever it was that he was given the opportunity to see, it had something to do with the the verbal instruction that he had been given. And those verbal instructions were to erect a place in which the priesthood that he would eventually install would implement or carry out the system the Lord would ask them to follow. All And all of those things served as a copy and a shadow to point to a reality. And that reality was, was Jesus. So Jesus, the great high priest, was serving in heaven in the presence of the Lord. The reality, that was the reality to which the tabernacle and the holy of holies and the mercy seat all pointed he he couldn't serve the text says he couldn't serve as a high priest on earth and we know that from last week and the week before because he was not he was not a part of the tribe of levi but he was the one to whom that priesthood pointed all of the priesthood pointed to jesus and his 
priesthood. His sacrifice was the sacrifice to which all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed. That which was earthly and physical was only a copy and a shadow of what was a heavenly and spiritual reality. And that heavenly and spiritual reality was far better than the earthly and co- the earthly copy and shadows. And, and his point is, why revert back? Why, why revert back to what is only a copy and a shadow when you have the fullness of the reality in Christ? When, when all of those things, the, the one to whom all of those things pointed is here and present and serving and ministering on our behalf and interceding on our behalf, why would we go back to that which only pointed to him and that couldn't do what he himself could do? And we know that... Um, he says in verse 13 that those copies and shadows are actually obsolete because the covenant itself is obsolete when you have the reality. And that brings us to verse 6 and a better covenant. As I mentioned last week, we need to rightly identify what the writer and the rest of the New Testament considers the old covenant. There's some confusion. But here, the writer defines... Um, that pretty clearly, not just pretty, but very clearly, by using the words of the Lord spoken through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. And in that passage, the new covenant of which Christ is the mediator is new, not in relation to the Abrahamic covenant, but in relation to the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant, which was the fulfillment, we said last week, was the fulfillment and seal of the Abrahamic covenant, superseded, not the Abrahamic covenant, but the Mosaic covenant. And the reason it superseded the Mosaic covenant was because it was able to do what the Mosaic covenant could not do. In other words, there was a major problem with the Mosaic covenant. And as we've said many times since our study began, the problem was that it was unable to do totally and completely what was needed to be done. You see, the Mosaic law, in Paul's words, was in fact righteous, holy, and good. However, it was unable to overcome the problem inherent in man, and that was sin. Listen to how Richard Phillips put it. He he said, It is sometimes said that the problem with the Old Covenant was that it was not a covenant of grace, but the Old Covenant was given amidst the greatest manifestation of grace in the entire Old Testament, namely the Exodus. So the problem with the Old Covenant was actually the infidelity of the people. Its main problem was not that it lacked grace, but that it was an external administration of salvation. It did not convey to the people the inward power needed to fulfill its demands. It's in this respect that the new covenant is better and is able to succeed where the old one failed. The new covenant works internally. It transforms those who come to God through it. It's a great quote. Another way, I thought about this, another way that... that would help us is that the new covenant is better than the old covenant because in the old covenant, the people had to vow, as we read from our Old Testament passage, in the old covenant, the people had to vow or promise, all this we will do. But in the new covenant, it's the Father who vows, all this I will do. And even more than that, not only does the Father promise all this I will do, but in the, and and just, by the way, just as he did in the Abrahamic covenant, right? But in the New Covenant, Jesus also says, all this I have done. Which, of course, explains why the Old Covenant is obsolete. Right? If the New Covenant is fulfilled in Christ and He is serving as a better priest within the Covenant, why do we need to go back 
It's obsolete. And that brings us to the better promises in verses second half of verse 10 to 13. And I just, I just want to walk um, through these promises in their order that we find them in Jeremiah and we find here um, in Hebrews. And the first promise is this. The first promise of the new covenant is inward change. Right? He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. In other words, this is a promise. There is a promise within the new covenant of the Spirit's work in salvation. God promises in the New Covenant to change the minds of His people, to change their thoughts, and to change them in their understanding. He promises an ability for them to discern spiritual things. He also promises a change of heart. He who once wrote the law uh, externally on stone tablets, right? did it, on it with his finger, um, he wrote the law on stone tablets, he now writes his law internally on the hearts of his people. His promises, he promises in that a change in desire. He promises a change of affections. He changes our, um, our want to, right? He promises to do what the law could never do in and of itself or by itself, which was bring about an internal change that actually results in the law no longer being burdensome. And yet, and, and we have to remember, because of that, while we are new creations, the flesh remains, and, and which is why Paul says in Romans 7 that those who possess that, that true saving faith are in this constant battle that's waging war within them between the spirit and the flesh. And where does that battle take place? Right? It takes place on or actually within the battlefields of our hearts and our minds. Uh, secondly, there's a the promise of intimacy. So there's a promise of inward change and there's a promise of intimacy. He says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Again, it's the promise that was made to Abraham, which again is an indication that the new covenant is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. This isn't a new status. It's not a new relationship. Um, it is a new level of intimacy in the relationship. It's, it's a promise of personal and direct access, personal and direct fellowship, personal and direct intimacy with God. Kent Hughes put it this way, there is a tender, truer relationship of heart to heart, to heart spirit to spirit, so that I will be their God and they shall be my people is true in a deeper, more soul-satisfying way. I will be their God means he gives himself to us and they shall be my people means he takes us to himself. Right? This means that while Christ died for his church um, and is building his church and we are corporately the people of God, we enter into the relationship with God one by one through the work of the Spirit. Right? We are known individually. And all those the Father chose before the foundation of the world from the least to the greatest will be granted faith and will come to a saving knowledge of the Lord by the Spirit. All of His children will know God. He will know us. He knows us and we know Him. Thirdly, there's a promise of forgiveness. He says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is, again, what the law could never do. 
The sacrificial system provided a temporary covering for sin until and only until the full and final debt of sin could be paid. In the Old Covenant, the Day of the Atonement, the priest would take the blood of the, the bull and would go inside the Holy of Holies behind the veil and he would throw that blood upon the mercy seat. Um, and that mercy seat sat upon the Ark of the Covenant in which uh, the Ten Commandments were. And, and so there's this, this you know, looking to the fact that God would look down from his throne on the mercy seat and would look through the blood and no longer see, you know, and look through the blood and no longer see the broken, uh, the moral law, see that broken moral law, but would see the blood that, that covered the sins of his people, right? Well, in the new covenant, the full and final debt was paid by the blood of Christ, right? The, the Messiah, the one who paid the once for all sacrifice for the sins of his people. And so it is, it's through his blood that the father sees his people and not only uh, well, he sees sees the blood and not their sin. And they've been forgiven of their sin and it's been finally paid for thoroughly and completely. And so he not only separates us as far, from our sin as far as the east is from the west, but he remembers our sin no more. By his grace. I know it's... Maybe I'm wrong, but it, it sometimes... I'll just be honest, sometimes for me that it just seems overly simplistic, particularly when we're wired, um, when our default is law, right? We want something to go and do. We're, we're in our home. I mean, we, we just, there's something that we want to go and do, but the writer, if what the writer said here was enough for the Jewish Christians in the midst of all that they were going through, it's enough for us today. And we don't, we don't need, you know, later on in the letter, we'll get things that we need to, you know, what it looks like to live a life worthy of our calling. But, but right now, he is, he is pointing us to Jesus. Right? He is wanting us to, to see that Christ, who is a better priest of a better covenant enacted on better promises is enough. He is our hope. He alone is our hope. And he's interceding on our behalf as members of that covenant. And we need to look to him and consider him. Not, not allow our hearts to grow hard, but to continue to look to him. And because there may be others, very briefly, because there may be others who have taken time to join us tonight, or maybe you're, you, know, you may be watching later on this week, um, let me say, if you've never repented and believed in the gospel, or if you've once made a profession of faith and you, um, you find yourself, uh, you find that you've wandered away, or you're in the midst of a crisis of faith, or you are um, overwhelmed with your guilt uh, of your sin, or you're weak and heavy laden because you've been trying to save yourself and, and remove that guilt on your own, or if you're just worn out from trying to justify yourself before God and before other people, let me say that that your only hope is Christ as well. Our greatest hope is your greatest hope. And his offer of salvation is available to you. And the offer is, and to, to extend that to you, is to, to acknowledge your sin and separation from God and your inability to save yourself and to repent of your sin and to turn to Jesus. He is a better priest of a better covenant and acted on better promises and he will intercede on your behalf if you will turn to him in faith. Rest in Him, look to Him, consider Him, just as we will be 
resting in Him and looking to Him and considering Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You and would ask that You would now, by Your Word and Spirit, help us to see and respond to our current circumstances as a part of Your divinely ordained, hope-filled path that we're walking in our journey of being conformed into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. And Amen.